many of you have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia series before? Anybody? Okay, cool. Some of you. Uh, how many of you have no idea what that is? And you're like, this is a weird thing. Okay, cool. Some of you. Um, my heart breaks for you. Uh, this is a great series written a, a while back by a guy named C.S. Lewis, and it's a, it's a whole made-up fantasy world, so for those of you who read fantasy stuff like I do, and you just get like to get lost in a world that's not Earth, it's a great series to read. And this week I was rereading the first book of the series. Um, it's now the first book, but it wasn't written as the first book, it was written later, but it's called The Magician's Nephew. And it's, it's uh, okay, some fans here, thank you. Um, I didn't write it, but thank you for at least acknowledging you read the book. I, I love this book because if you've never read it before, it's, it's about two kids, Polly Diggory or Diggory, depending if you're a Harry Potter fan. Um, and, and so it's funny because these two kids find themselves um, under the influence of the, the, the boy's uncle, Andrew, who has magic rings that transport them to another world. While they're in this other world, uh, temptation hits, they ring a bell and awaken a witch gotta have a villain, right? Villain uh, tugs along with them from world to world until they find themselves not in a dying world, but in a very new created world, a world that's just coming into existence. And you begin to read about this lion who is uh, just breathing life into this world, and you know the, 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 the plants are growing, the sun is warm, the animals are coming to life out of the dust, and as they're coming to life, this, uh, this lion, Aslan, who is in charge of this land, begins to like pick some of the animals out, two by two. Not like Noah to take them away, but instead he picks them out and they get the ability to talk. That's kind of cool to me, is now you have talking animals in a book, I'm all in. And so these animals begin to talk to each other, and these two kids who are there are so excited, and they're going up to the, the animals, and they're trying to figure out what's going on in this world. What are we supposed to do? We need to get some help. But Uncle Andrew, he finds himself about 100 feet away. And while these two kids are having conversations with the animals, Uncle Andrew is not. He's actually terrified. He's terrified because where he is, all he sees is snarling. All he hears is growling. And it looks like these animals are about to devour these kids. And at one point, they turn towards him out of curiosity and go, who's this? And run at him, and he freaks out. He starts to go nuts because he thinks they're going to kill him when they're just curious. And it's at this moment that C.S. Lewis inserts a thought that is way beyond a children's book. And I remember reading this to my kids and going, this is right over their head. And this is what he writes. I love this. He says, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. That's good stuff, right? That's real good stuff in a kid's book just buried and sitting there. And, and I remember when I read that statement to my kids, it was like, Phew right over their head, but I had to go back and think about it. I had to, to wonder, like, man, for something so deep, where I stand, and I'm like, have, have you ever been in a situation before where you're in a tough conversation with someone, and you stop, and you're like, why can't you just see things my way? Why, why don't you see what I see here? Why can't you get this? Do I need to explain this in another way so that you understand? Has anybody else said this besides me? All right, cool. So then I know that you're with me. Usually we don't say that in a great way. How can I help you understand? It's usually in a very aggressive way, you know, are, is it getting through? Hello, McFly, you know, come on. And we get at each other. And, and here's the truth, though. And here's what I really think is so important, is that I think it's true for all of us that who we are 
and where we stand determines what we see. Who we are and where we stand determines what we see. And I know that this group is very large today. I know that the people who are watching online, you know, we are so diverse in where we are coming from in our lives. We're coming from different places. So the way that you will even view this time together that we have is going to be very different. I know up front full and well, there's no way I can communicate and connect with every single one of you. Because where you are, I, I don't know. Who you are, I don't know. But it will determine how you listen how you see. And today, as we look at that series of when people meet Jesus, I want to look at two different people. One's a set of, of people and one is a person. And to really look at the idea of how is it that two people at the same exact time or similar in years with the same moment can view it completely different. And simply the reality will be is because they sit in a very different seat, and they are very different people. I know that today, listen, some of us, we look at Jesus, and we sing these songs like, like, like we're singing to a Savior, a Messiah, who has come and rescued us from ourselves. And others, we're here because maybe someone's invited us, and, and we're, we're appeasing them, and we're like, I love you, and I'll be here for you, but this isn't where we are. Some of us are so ingrained in thinking about things critically, and so no matter what it is that comes at us, we look at Jesus with critical eyes. Some of us are so scared to ask questions because we feel like our faith isn't that strong, and so now we're scared to ask questions of Jesus, so we just believe whatever's told to us, and we are all approaching Jesus from a different perspective, and how do you think where you're sitting and who you are impacts how you view Jesus? Because it sure impacted the people in the passages that Bill had read for us this morning. I want to look at the story of Jesus' birth. But it, it's kind of important to set it up a little because I think we hear about the story of Jesus' birth all the time when it comes to Christmas, but we forget there's a lot that happens in between, uh, especially if you've been with us at Crossbridge and you are soaping with us, which is how we read the Bible. We just finished something in the Old Testament, and it was, uh, you know, First and Second Chronicles, and then we jumped right into the Gospel of Matthew, this biography of Jesus, and there's this funny little thing that's right here. You see that right there? That one little page, do you know what this represents? about 400 years of time, right? Uh, I, I loved it. In my small group, someone asked one of the best questions. Uh, you know, Pastor Jimmy, when did we get from Babylon ruling everything to Roman influence? I don't understand what happened here. When did that happen? And it's like, in 400 years, a lot happened from where we left our Jewish nation to where they are at the point when we start Matthew. And I get that because, like, perspective, right? Um, could you imagine being on a boat when Jamestown, Virginia was established. When our country was barely in existence and they're like, oh, that looks like a good spot. Let's start there. It's a swamp. Woohoo! British people picking places. I don't know. They get there and here we are. The difference between where we read Jesus and his story and his biographies and where we left off from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, is the difference between Jamestown, Virginia and us. A lot of life has happened in our country in these 400 years, hasn't it? I mean, we are not the same type of country. It is very different. And the same would be true for the Jewish people in this region and this nation. You see, um, you ready for, uh, I'm going to try to do a one-minute history lesson. You ready? Okay. 
All right. Some of you are like, yeah, and others of you are going to be like, wait a second, I need more, I need more. You can go, go Wikipedia or something. Have fun, all right? Around 350 BCE, there is this moment when uh, a name you would know, a guy named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great studied under another person you know. His name's Aristotle, right? We have no problem believing Aristotle existed, but Jesus, no, 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 right? Uh, so what we have is Alexander the Great begins to learn. He begins to get his feet under him, and he turns into one of the greatest conquerors ever. He completely rips through the whole Middle Eastern and Asian world at that time, and he is bringing Greek culture to the entire region. They're all speaking the same language. They're all understanding each other, and he is starting to take all the rules of this oppressive Greek government and putting them in all the places that he has conquered. You with me? So what happens is, as they come through the Israel part of it, the Jews stand up and they say, we will not have that. So they fight back. It doesn't really work out well for about 200 years. Until about 200 BCE, they stand up, they fight, they win, and it's like, hurrah, we've got this. And it only takes about um, 150 years until... Uh, the, the, not Pompey the city, but a guy named Pompey. He's a general. He's a great general, Pompey the Great. He comes through and he decimates Jerusalem. I mean decimates it, about 63 BCE. He just destroys this place. Nothing is left. And they are taking now all these Roman standards and these Roman rules and really putting them into place. So what you have is a Jewish nation that knew how to win and then they lost everything and then they tried to get it back and now they've got the worst rules ever and you've got a Roman government that's taken over who everyone's jockeying for position. Everyone's jockeying for position. But what's funny is when you can keep losing as much as the Jews did at this time, you begin to jockey for position in-house, right? If you can't have authority outside, you want to have it inside. And so that's what they do. They begin to jockey for position, and they start arguing over things that don't always matter. And it divides this nation even more than the, the Romans and the Greeks had done. But they all did agree on one thing. A Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will rescue us. They disagreed on how he'd come. They disagreed on what he'd look like. They disagreed on what he'd do. But they all agreed he was coming. So needless to say, as we look into, Matthew, or into Luke, no one expected the Messiah to be born as a child. No one expected a teenage mom to be giving birth in a stable into a stone manger. This was just not what it was. But when he's born, God does something amazing. And I love this. Instead of putting it on the billboards, instead of broadcasting it out to the whole nation, like, here we are, let's get ready. In that first passage that Bill read for us in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. I love the way that Luke writes about this encounter because it makes complete sense to me. As shepherds, and we've, we talked a little bit about this as we unpacked the life of King David, as shepherds, these guys would have been simply in charge of protecting their sheep. And depending on the season that they were in around Bethlehem, this city, if it was a dry season, they would take their sheep and they would move from place to place to place to, to protect them and to make sure they could eat and drink. But during the spring season, they always had them close to the city. That's what, They were safer when they were all together. And so we have this group of shepherds who gathers together, and they begin to make sure that all of their flocks are being taken care of. But shepherds, 
again, we, we've, we've looked at this before, but they're not the most trusted group. And they're so untrusted, believe it or not, that many times if you were looking to buy something, if it was wool or if it was meat or if it was cheese or something that, that they could have possibly stolen from that flock without their masters knowing, you usually wouldn't even buy things from shepherds you did not trust them. They were not considered trustworthy unless they were from your city. And so now we have shepherds who the world sees as untrustworthy, the ones who you send off because maybe it's just easier not to have them at home. They're by the city of Bethlehem and they are outside, they're hanging out, you can relax when you're close to home. They let their guard down, and then verse 9 happens. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. So when the angel of the Lord appears to them, they're hanging out, and, and like all of a sudden it's like, and it says that they're terrified. This makes sense to me. You're there, you're relaxing, you're close to home, and all of a sudden the, the sky lights up with a, an angel? This, at that point, I promise you, makes you rethink where you're standing. Right? Sometimes these things come into our life that are so big, so miraculous, or, or, or so difficult that you don't know what to do and you're scared out of your minds and it changes the way you think about things, doesn't it? It just does. That's what happens right here. And, and the angel is like, I'm here. And they're like, we're done. We're dead. And he's like, whoa, 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 easy. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. It's okay. I'm going to bring you some great news for all people. The good news that's better than any news you've ever heard. The Messiah has come and he's in the city. This news, if it wasn't overwhelming enough to have one angel telling you the Messiah that you've been waiting for is right over there, all of a sudden an entire like angelic chorus shows up and starts singing together with this angel. Um, I mean, what do you do with that? Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth, you know, to those whom his favors rest, and then they just disappear. What do you do with that if you're the shepherds? You, you can maybe justify a collective hallucination for one angel. But now you got this giant host coming together, all singing the same song. You know they were looking at each other going, did you see what I see? Yes, was it the cheese? Was it like, what was this? Something big has happened. And so what do they do? They go into the city. You have to remember that who we are and where we stand determines what we see. This was supposed to be an easy night for them. And instead, the shepherds, they're confused. But it impacts where they go. They aren't believed. They aren't trusted. And in their profession, they're questioned by everybody. Why would the angel give them this news? Why would the angel give them this news? And I think, and I believe that it's because God wanted them to see something beautiful. And they have the ability to do that where others might have missed it. Because they're so used to looking after their flocks. They're used to caring for them from you know, birth all the way to death. They understand what it means to care deeply. And they're overlooked. And the kingdom of heaven is about looking at those overlooked. And he says, I see you. I know who you are, and I will bring you to a place to show you something I will not show anyone else. Because you'll see this, and you'll believe this. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. And it changed where they stood, because they went, they saw him, and in verse 16 it says, they hurried to the village, they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. 
After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. It's exactly like it was described to them. They see him, and then what do they do? They go and they tell who they were overlooked and not trusted. It determined what they saw, right? And, and they were willing to hear from God and say, I'll, I'll check this out. He saw them through this, angel's vi- through this vision of the angel. And I'm floored because who's going to listen to these shepherds? You know what? That's not their problem. That's on other people and where they sit, where they stand, how they hear and who they are. The shepherds completely changed everything because they met Jesus. And they said, this is worth proclaiming. And it's funny because they see him completely different than the other passage that Bill had read for us. A passage where, remember that history piece and Rome is kind of going back and forth with each other, trying to figure out what's going on. You see, there's a man in this passage And when he's born, he's born in the region of Galilee, this Judean region. And and his name is Herod. And I know that some of you are like, okay, I know this Herod guy. We read this story. Do you remember when I talked about that Pompey coming through and destroying everything in 63? Well, about 10 years later, Herod is born. And when he's born, he grows up in this region, and his, he becomes very familiar with all the Jewish traditions. Believe it or not, he studies as a Jew in the temple, and he learns um, all the traditions and all of the things that are happening. He understands this culture. He practices it. And his dad becomes really, really tight with a very important person. He becomes very tight with this general, Julius Caesar. Familiar? Right, Julius Caesar ends up seeing this kid, Herod, knows he knows the region. He says, you know what? I need you to be governor of this region. And, and, and he's only 25 at the time, Herod. He's 25. This is your space. Over the next couple of years, Herod does a killer job. Like, really, he just does such a great job. He's flushing out bandits. He's stopping thieves. There's little uprisings. But one uprising comes that scares the garbage out of him. He doesn't know what to do. And so he runs to Rome, and he's like, guys, I need help. I need help in this region. Would you help me? And they're all in because the region is so crucial. So they give him this army to go back with. But before they send him back, do you know what happens? The Roman, the Roman Senate stops him and says, you need a title before you go back. And so without him asking, without him looking to get this, the Roman Senate unexpectedly titles him the king of the Jews. This is his title. He goes back, and as he goes back, um, he destroys this uprising. Uh, they, they, the Jews love him, and they also hate him because he's got all this money that he's spending to build the temples, to show favor, and to, to practice some sacrificial things, but not all things because some things make me uncomfortable, and I don't want to do that. I'd rather marry 18 people and just be cool with that, even if they're related, like, oh, whatever. And, and it's like, they, no, you can't kill people you know. You can't kill people you like. Uh, this guy killed family members, brothers, moms, wives. I mean, that dude's a mess. Actually, I think it was his brother-in-law at a party. He ordered him drowned. Solid dude, right? 
Real solid guy. So he's got this tension that he's carrying. I know the people. I love the people. I need to make them happy, but I want to do what makes me happy at the same time. And now he's got this title of king of the Jews, and we read right in the beginning of Matthew that it's, it's, this is what goes down in chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn? What's the title they use for this newborn? All right, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star when as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Well, can you feel attention here? There's no infant that should get that title. Whose title is that? Come on, this is back and forth here. Whose title is this? This is Herod's title. Do you ever have that person coming up in your work that is going for your title? that wants your spot, wants your role, that thinks maybe you don't deserve it and they do, and, and so there's that job. Did you ever see that person? Maybe they're not even looking for the title, but there's something there, and you're like, wow. And you can think in your head, they're coming after my job. They've never said anything, but you think it. We all do. There's security that's on the line here, and he's worked hard for that title now that he's gotten it. You're gonna let some infant steal that from you? Wait a second, you can't do that. And he's going to be the one that receives all these gifts? Come on, we, we always have like in your little manger scenes and nativity scenes, these wise men that are, um, they're definitely, they don't really usually look um, Eastern. They're, they're really, it's really awkward. These people were um, Indian, Eastern Asian. You know, they, they, were, they did not look like everybody else and they did not just kneel and be like, here is a tiny piece of gold. They caravaned across. They're coming with massive amounts of stuff massive amounts of stuff. You don't travel for a vial of frankincense, right? They, they've got tons. Who deserves that? A baby or Herod? If I'm Herod, I deserve that. That should be for me. Worship should come my way. And then King Herod, we read, was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So it's not Herod. Actually, everybody in this main city kind of ticked off here. and They don't know what's going on. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? You see, when your position and your title define who you are, you are not going to let a baby steal that from you. And any risk, any possible offense at that title and position, it affects who you are. Because you're thinking, but that's not, if that title goes, then who am I? Where will I stand? Where will I sit? And jealousy and anger actually influences how we see. When your position defines who you are, you're in trouble. Remember, Herod knows the Jewish tradition, so who does he call for help? Because he doesn't really know. He's like, listen, religious leaders, come and help me. Let's get an idea of what's going on here. Tell me where this is supposed to be. Oh, it's in Bethlehem. And so he turns to the royal party and just like most manipulative, selfish, narcissistic people do, say, God, you do what you want to do. You do you, right? Go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. I'm all for you. Ah, you go and do this. This is not the truth. You see, he's looking to secure his seat. And many of us know how this story ends. We know that this is not Herod's real motive. And if you pause for a second, isn't this what politics is all about? Positioning other people to reinforce your seat. 
getting other people to feel something and do something so that you can stay where you are. As we hit this next year, this is not in my notes, but I just feel so prompted to say this. As we hit this next year, I am begging you from the depths of my soul, would you not let some stupid party or person influence how you should be viewing this season of politics coming up? It is not worth it. You are better than that. If you follow Jesus, you are a child of God and called to something very different, that is his kingdom. Herod misses this. Herod's securing his spot, and he's trying to manipulate other people, and fear is manipulate people. Go do this. I, I want to make sure that I'm there too. I'm there too. But the fear doesn't manipulate them. The fear is driving Herod. I can't lose this seat. I can't lose this title. And so what, what happens in this story, you may be familiar with it, but if you're not, um, as, as these wise, this whole you know, wise men group comes, these astrology People, and they, they bring all these gifts, all these things. God visits both this group and Joseph in a dream and says, you got to get out. It's going to go bad on you. It's going to go really bad. And so they leave. And so Joseph and Mary go to Egypt, and then these other guys, they go all the way back, and they go like a back doorway so that Herod doesn't know. When Herod finds out, he's going to be furious. He's actually livid. We read this in verse 16. It says that Herod was furious when he realized that the wise man had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on what the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. You see, fear and aggression from Herod cost quite a few infants their lives. If you go back into Exodus, there's a Pharaoh who's so scared at how quickly the Israelites are multiplying. He says, just start killing the boys. When we are defined by our titles, and this determines where we stand, and we can't see life outside of that lens, people pay. The people around us pay deeply because we're so scared of losing it. And yet, the shepherds, what did they have to lose they were willing to put themselves in a place of humility, even though you and I know they were terrified. Terrified, it says. And what was that fear over? It was the fear of God and what he is doing, not a fear of a seat and a title. You see, when we put ourselves in a place where we can hear from God, it will bring on so many things into our life that will benefit not just us, but the people around us. He changes our lenses to look at people with compassion, to look at people with empathy, to love where they are and say, instead of, why can't you see things my way? The question that Jesus might ask and asks all the time when you look at his conversation is, how did you get to that position? Can you tell me? How do you see what you see? How did you get to that place? But most of us are too darn scared to ask that question of ourselves. We don't want to dig deep into our own life, and so we find our security in this is who I am. I'm going to be put together. I'm going to secure my title of, of being that person in my neighborhood who's always helping and doing these things, but don't ask me if I need help, you know, because I, I can't do that. That would mean I'm not put together. Pride gets in the way of the way that we see the world and the moment that we think it revolves around us, we miss a call from an angel to go see the Messiah. You're here today and you find yourself in a place where, guess what? You see things different than I do. 
maybe in that first chapter, or that, uh, I think it's like the 10th chapter of The Magician's Nephew, you find yourself in a place where there's so much joy in your life and, and it's frustrating the garbage out of people around you right now. Because you, you're hearing the animals talk, you're hearing God speak to you, you open up scriptures and you read the Bible and all of a sudden things are coming alive and it feels like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Some of you are getting baptized today and where you stand in that water is gonna determine what you see and you're so excited about this and you should be and it's like, this is great. And yet very close next to you, maybe six inches, maybe a hundred feet. There's some who are like Uncle Andrew going, this Jesus stuff, this is just out to devour you. This isn't who you really are. This is just sucking you dry. This isn't real. This is causing you to give up your time, your effort, your energy, your money. What are you doing? This is a waste for you and it's gonna kill you like those animals. And we sit right next to each other all together. You may be looking at some getting baptized today and say, man, what, what's the big deal about being dunked in water? Really? Like this is, so, like, yeah. Because this is what our Savior has done. And the way that we review our lives is through his lens. Could C.S. Lewis' words really be true? When he says, what you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Where are you standing today? Where are you standing when it comes to the person of Jesus? Is he just a liar? Is he a savior? Is he a madman? Is he just a good guy? Your answer to that question will determine how you view everything. It'll impact how you view the people around you, and most importantly, I think it impacts how we view ourselves. Do you know how God sees you? As a child worth talking to? To celebrate with animals talking to you, maybe not like literally. Do you know they'd want us to give you good gifts? That he's okay with your questions. He's okay with your wrestling. He's okay with all the stuff. Like when we just sang about like when I'm in the garbage place and I can't see past a mountain, you're still present. Yeah, he's still there. But if you can't see him, it's all you're gonna see is a mountain in the way. How do you see the world around you? Could you imagine what it would be like for us in our marriages, in our schools, at work, if we viewed people through the lens of Jesus to ask them, how did they get to that place? And learn to love them where they are instead of expecting people just to get it because we believe it. I don't think people need better answers from us. I think they need better questions. That's what Jesus did. This is who he was. And we celebrate that every time we come to the communion table together. We celebrate the fact that Jesus looks at us and says, you will wrestle. And, and the lens that he looked through the entire world was not from a seat and a throne to secure his title of king of Jews. Instead, in John chapter 13, we find him taking off his robe and getting into the place of a servant. Because where he stood, actually kneeled, determined what he saw, and that was the feet of the disciples who he washed every one of them. And then when he ate with them, he knew that they would betray him. He already said that. And, and it's at that point that he says, this bread, and he holds up the bread at the table, and he says, this is, 
my body that's been broken for you. Why is it broken? Because we are broken and we need help seeing things better. Amen. You may, you may feel like I can see a person like Jesus uh, right, right now and you have it, but how long does it take until that gets all gray again and fuzzy? We need this every week to remind us that Jesus, his body was broken for us so that we could see clearly again. And then he says, and this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins because if we can't confess our sins, our hearts become so hard and who we are becomes so unapproachable. And the beauty is, is that's not who we are because who Jesus says we are is we have been, we have a heart of stone, but he has given us a heart of flesh. Something that can feel for others and not reject them. And we miss this. This is what we celebrate at the table, his body broken for us and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, I do want to do it just a little bit different today is instead of coming and just grabbing uh, the cracker and dipping it into the juice or grabbing one of the prepackaged ones and taking communion, receiving communion here, I'm going to ask that you would receive communion and bring it back to your seat. And when we have all been received communion, we will eat and drink together. Would you stand with me? Jesus, I am fully aware that the lens that I see the world is often very Jimmy-centered. It is focused on what I'm getting out of something or how it's going to benefit or hurt me. And I just, I am begging you that you would help me see clearer. That I would stand and truly say, I can stand on you. That my feet are rooted on that mountain. That mountain of Christ that is unmovable. Forgive me for where I, I just misstep or I just intentionally turn and go down a path a different way. Lord, I, 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 the picture I pray over us is almost for those of us who, who have trusted in you would, instead of Claritin commercial, would you just rip off that film and allow us to see something differently, that it would be clearer, crisper. We would see each other in each situation as you've designed and walk out of love, not fear and aggression. We would walk from a place of worship of you, not a place of holding on to seats and authority. Thank you for giving up your body for us. We love you and we celebrate you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, we would encourage you to come to the table. If this is not a choice you've made, please hang back and um, there's no judgment on that from us. Come and receive.
Jesus sat with his disciples. And he held up that bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Let us eat and receive Jesus. And then he held up the cup of redemption, the third cup of Passover, and he says, and this, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. If you are carrying something right now, I am asking you to confess and let that go. And as you drink with me, would you receive the forgiveness of Jesus through his blood? As we prepare to close this morning, it's a bit of a different benediction from the prophet Ezekiel. At the end of this very difficult prophet's book, there's this picture of what it's going to look like, what the kingdom of heaven will look like in the end. And Ezekiel has this image, and he sees the temple. And God says to him, and then he said to me, Ezekiel, this river flows east through the desert coming out of the temple into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. May you flow with the water and the blood of Jesus. May it impact how you see, and as we go out and celebrate, um, as we celebrate baptism together, would you see this water and know that where the water is, there is life. Would where you stand and how you see bring life to people, not death? This is what changes our world. Amen? Amen.